0: In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking.
1: Now heaven knows
0: anything goes. Good authors, too, who once knew better words, now only use four-letter words. Writing prose, anything goes. The world has gone mad today, and good's bad today, and day's night today, and black's white today, and most guys today, that woman prize today. Just silly gigolos. Though I'm not a great romancer, I know that you're bound to answer when I propose. That anything goes. Hello, and welcome to
2: Broadway Radios This week on Broadway for Sunday, July twenty-third, twenty twenty-three. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hello. Hello, also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. We'll talk about that in a second. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and also, tomorrow, will you give me a Barbara Streisand hello? Was that tomorrow, a Barbara Streisand? Tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's an Andrew McCardle. Hello. (laughs) So uh, tomorrow, July 24th, 2023, we have Jerry Orbach's Broadway featuring William Michaels, J. Aubrey Jones and more at 54 Below. How is that going, Michael?
0: I think it's going really well. So uh, I think I think people will find it very enjoyable and it's um, it's really full full up, full up. which, um, I mean, from the moment I announced it, I, a lot, so many people told me they thought it was a really good idea for a show. Uh, and there's a great love for Jerry Orbach, I think, mm. out there. And so mm. that that accounts for a lot of the mm. uh, fact that, that it's so full. That's great. So
2: uh, be there or be square. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did they use that in greece <laughs> i know. think so. <laughs> so michael did they use that in the argyles greece that you read last week <laughs> <laughs> i don't i don't think that <laughs> Fontaine. that line is in it now
1: maybe
0: <laughs> john, so McGlynn, tell
1: us- john mcglynn who made so many wonderful albums including an astonishing showboat used to prefer to say be there or be a hexagon i don't know who used to this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Everybody likes a geometry joke. That's right. So, uh, so Michael, tell us about Cast Album Reviews. What happened?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, a wonderful fan of the site, Patrick O'Brien, uh, wrote to me, and he uh, said that he noticed that there were several reviews in the original incarnation, uh, you know, the Theater Mania Guide to Musical Theater Recordings, that never made it to mm-hmm. the site. And I remember that um, when, we were, <laughs> when we were doing that, James, and we were doing the transfer yeah. that you yeah, were yeah. involved in, I remember that some of them I, I, I left out, I thought, just because, I don't know, it seemed like they were rather obscure and, and uh, I could, had trouble finding uh, images and things like that. But anyway, he came up with, a, a, so far, the list is, uh, um, I think, almost 20 uh, or more uh recording. So in the past few days, uh you know, I, I, I've just readded them. And uh the ones I've re-added include uh Cole Porter's Aladdin, uh, which was reviewed by Ken Bloom. Okay. Uh and um Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death, which was reviewed by David Wolf, the late David Wolf. Mm-hmm. And um after the fair. Uh, which was reviewed by Mark Miller. So I, I'm really um, indebted to Patrick O'Brien for real you know realizing that and and uh we can we can just add them all back. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's really great.
2: Oh that's that's wonderful. To pull yeah. back the curtain a little bit on this uh back when Michael was launching cast album reviews, uh uh you know he had asked he had talked to me about it and to just kind of get my opinion or a little bit of technology help on it. And we had a print version of the book, but we had no files, so it was a matter of keystroking all those reviews wow. back in, which really sucked. Wow. So I said to Michael, Never "I said, can that. can I have a copy of the book?" And Michael got me a copy. Can I have a copy of the book that you can't have back? <laughs> <laughs> and so he gave me a copy of the book that he could. That uh, I took, and we. Cut the binding uh, of the book and made each of the pages free-floating pages. Oh. Then we put it into a copy machine oh. and scanned the whole book. You know, it took oh, you know f- fifteen minutes to scan because I was able to copy. I was able to cut the binding off, mm. so it just put it through a copy machine. It took like fifteen minutes to scan the whole book, wow. and then we ran it through what's called an optical character recognition program, an OCR. And it, so we didn't have to retype the whole book, and it's mostly good, mostly Mm -hmm. correct. And then Michael cleaned it up and turned it into the website. It was a really fun, cool process. Too,
0: that was amazing because I type fast, but I don't type that fast.
2: Yeah. So (laughs) So, that was that was. My goodness, I I was in my old office, Michael.
0: How many years ago was that? Mm, That Quite some, quite some time. I don't remember. Seven, eight years
2: ago, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah that copy machine's long gone. So.
0: <laughs> so these new ones uh these new old ones I'm I'm just typing myself yeah. but it that's Easter. no big deal
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean uh, you know it was a long time ago that I copied those things but it wasn't Nearly as long as when *Here Lies Love* first opened up at the Public. <laughs> ah, that's right. So, <laughs> <laughs> Took a long time so, for it
1: to get to Broadway.
2: I, I'm telling you. I, well, you know Lafayette Street to Broadway is only a block over. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> uh, right? <but>
1: Technically.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so it went from Lafayette Street. To Broadway mm. and then up, uh, you know, mm. 70 or 80 blocks, <laughs> 60 blocks or something like, that. Him, something like uh, that. 60 blocks or so. <laughs> so, Peter, you got a chance to see Here Lies Love, the Broadway incarnation that is playing over at the Broadway theater in a reconfigured Broadway theater. So uh, we have to say at first that there are two ways to experience Here Lies Love. One is... Standing and one is sitting and you chose the sitting option, correct?
1: Yeah, because oh. uh, the first time around I had to stand and it was murder. Anyway, um, yes, I guess this has to set the record for the most standing room uh, positions in any Broadway show. Um, <laughs> anyway, Do those- you think they sell it with
2: uh, standing room only tickets? <laughs>
1: <laughs> It'd be a good uh, marketing device, I think. This is about Imelda Marcos. Uh, local girl makes good, weds famous man, was <laughs> stuck in the right place at the perfect time, filled a App. She was lucky. Uh, if all that sounds familiar, yes, that's the lyric from Avita, and the parallels and uh, with Avita are very, very strong here. So, if you know Avita well, you may not have as great a time as here lies love. Um, if you're just looking at book music and lyrics, but um, but in terms of the experience, yes, uh, the theater has been reconfigured tremendously into a U-shaped uh, situation. So. You can sit on the sides um, of the U, uh, the <laughs> the, um, the vertical uh, part of it. And the um, horizontal part of, of the U is pretty much the balcony, uh, mezzanine balcony of the uh, Broadway theater as we know it. But um the downstairs area is the one that um, has the standing room, and there's an enormous unit that um, twirls around slowly, I'll grant you, and you have to move around. You don't just stand. You have to move around um, or else you'll be hit by the uh, device. Okay, um, so uh, I, I have to say the music is very pleasant. I enjoyed hearing the music. Um, um, the lyrics weren't uh, nearly as impressive. What really surprised me about the Imelda Marcos story, which I didn't know very much about, that she was very very much involved as a child with um a uh, a, a guy named Nino Aquino and um, he turned out to be an enemy of the Marcos regime. So that's really a very interesting part of the story that you it, it's one thing to have enemies but one thing to have an enemy that used to be a boyfriend i mean that's really something mm-hmm. and how of course um she and he treat um that enemy is uh, something that is um not very nice at all so what do we have here we have a played by Ariel jacobs very very good performance and repeating their roles from um, the original production, which is really nice when that happens, because after all, as as James pointed out, it's been um, a decade since this uh, showed up downtown. So Jose Lana, uh, 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 an actor I really, really enjoy seeing uh, whenever I get the chance to, plays Marcos. um, And also um, very impressive from the original production is Conrad Ricamora, who we've seen in a lot of shows, I'm happy to say. And he plays uh, Mr. Aquino. What's really dazzling to me um, is the um, projections. Wow. Boy, um, they spent a fortune on that. And and, um, they're really, really uh, amazing to watch. So there is a great deal of eye candy for this show. And um, one really has to be so, so, so impressed by what Peter Negrini has done with the projections. So, uh, but of course, (laughs) you got to give David Corin's credit, too, for pulling apart this theater and um, making it is now also in a tiny role, um, just a very tiny role, but um, it's, it was very nice to see her get um, applause is uh, Leah Salonga as Aurora, Kino? um certainly who is um, <laughs> very much um, related to um, Ninoy. And um, she has a, a very, very um, impressive number and of course she has wonderful stage presence this this uh it must be very odd for her to be back at the broadway theater where of course she made her debut in 1991 in miss saigon and um (laughs) i guess the dressing rooms are the same but nothing else must look familiar to her when she gets out on that stage (laughs) so what's really surprising to me is there isn't any mention of shoes um Let's go to Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> Jesus Christ Superstar is a serious show, no question about it. And it takes um, uh, its its characters very, very seriously. Um, I Don't Know How to Love Him is, is quite a, 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 a marvelous look into uh, this woman's Mary Magdalene's attitude. And um, one of my favorite lyrics of all time. Um, when Judas sings, I've been your right hand man all along, because we've never thought of that before. At least I haven't. And I mean, I went through 12 years of Catholic education <laughs> and uh, nobody ever mentioned that Judas was a right hand man. And I thought that was a tremendous perception from Tim Rice. Why am I bringing this up? Because it's a serious show, Jesus Christ Superstar. And yet, towards the end, we have a comic number with Herod. And uh, this show could have used a comic number about shoes because it's all very earnest uh, from beginning to end. And uh, I'm, I kept on waiting for it because that's really, I think, one of the things that people think of when they think of Imelda Marcos. So anyway, is this? Um, it's more an experience than a Broadway musical. And um, I, I have to say, being in that seated area and looking down at the people, I saw a lot of smiles. Uh people seem to enjoy standing around and um okay, I gotta move now. All right, fine, I'll move. Yeah, that's great. Oh, I have to move now. Oh, that what fun. You know. So uh people seem to enjoy that immeasurably. And um, if that's the type of thing you like, well then you're gonna have a good time walking. Um maybe you'll lose a few calories. Um I guess I should have <laughs> just walked now that, around now that I think of it, it couldn't hurt. <laughs> so anyway, um uh, uh, <laughs> uh not my type of show, but uh certainly sit throughable for me.
2: All right. So uh, in our chat room, Greg Christensen brings up, has any Broadway theater ever been reconfigured as much as the Broadway? I'm thinking, you know, well, that one, <laughs> that,
1: that's what he means. Yeah. I think. Oh, that's oh, what he oh, oh I'm, oh, I'm <laughs> sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah because uh, for Dude and certainly Candide, uh, Dude for a very short period of time, Candide for about, close to a couple of years. I
2: mean, yeah. great, great mm-hmm. comment. Uh Yeah. Mm hmm great comments that when i'm not not,
0: so much not not so so much much, yeah yeah. uh peter i have a question on that note someone i know who already saw the show said they felt that the theater was too large for it did you get that impression at all
1: considering that there were so many people on the floor and every seat seemed to be taken i guess um, <laughs> uh, but i guess you're really talking about the, the power of the show itself that's um, what
0: i think the person uh, meant.
1: Th- yeah. uh, fine i can appreciate that yes i will say that um when they were um at, uh, the farthest distance from me that they could possibly be i felt <laughs> like i was watching trained fleas but um yeah so i i, th- I think that's a fair assessment
0: Okay, yeah, because I did see it at the public, and it was in a quite a small space oh, yeah. down there. Oh,
1: yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Basically a room. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: So, Michael, you have this coming up uh, this week for you?
1: Yes, Tuesday, yeah.
2: All right. So uh, we will chat about it again very soon. So that's Here Lies Love at the Broadway Theater. Uh, um... And it's an open run, and we'll talk about it again. So, Michael, you got a chance to see uh, Alex Settleman in his show that we talked about it previously. But what's your take on this?
0: I really, really loved it, and I have to say, I saw it on a Tuesday night, and it was very, very full. I mean, I, I don't know how if what they're doing in terms of TDF and papering and things like that, but the orchestra seemed full at the Hudson theater. And I, I, I didn't go upstairs, but I looked up and I could see there were obviously people in both the mezzanine. And uh, I, I even saw some people in the, in the second balcony. Uh, so I think maybe word has gotten around because this show is absolutely hilarious. Peter talked about it last week or uh, two weeks ago, whenever it was uh, this comedian, Alex Edelman, who uh, the, the, the germ of the show is that uh, based on a true incident where he uh was looking in the uh uh, online somewhere and he saw a tweet that said if you have questions about your whiteness come to and then it gave an address uh, in queens and he was very intrigued by this Uh, i mean i'm sure he probably thought um he was just intrigued uh, you know on a on a on a level of just interest in what that could be. But I, I I assume he thought maybe he would go to this meeting and then use it as fodder for, uh you know, for his comedy, uh, which is certainly what wound up happening. Um, and uh, he is a Jew. Uh, and so, uh, obviously, there's the, a very fraught situation as to what might happen uh when he went to this meeting um but so he talks about that and he he says how he met a cute girl there and he was very torn about that because she was so cute but he assumed that she was a white supremacist and hated jews you know um uh there's a lot of very funny and interesting tangents in the story too it's not only about the meeting um he goes back and talks about he, a memory of when uh, he and his family had Christmas when Alex and his brother were very young. And the reason they had Christmas was because his mother's close friend uh, had recently had uh, two of her family members die, and the mother felt really bad for her friend and so and who had nowhere to go on Christmas. So they had uh, they one and only time they had Christmas in their Jewish household for uh, the benefit of that friend. And and it's a really funny sweet hilarious story um uh and he keeps going on to tangents but he keeps coming back to the the story of the meeting which really is is very very it's it's funny but it's also uh, as you might imagine it's it's very gripping and kind of scary in a way too um so i'm glad he went there because I, i i think it's it's um It's a unique perspective on on that kind of a situation, which I don't imagine any of us have been in. Uh the one misstep in the show I thought was uh, the audience really really seemed to adore him but at one point he said he compared um going to that white supremacist meeting with his work as a comedian and he said something like I often have to perform in front of indifferent or hostile audiences and that really seemed to bring the the theater down for for a few moments because um I don't think anyone there likes to think of themselves as indifferent or hostile. And certainly it it didn't seem to be because of the response that he was getting. Um So I, I, if I were, <laughs> to give him advice, if I were to have the nerve to do that i would I would advise him to cut that one line uh because i i, I don't think it helped anything because um, I really, really, really love this show i i uh, I advise you to go see it if at all possible and um, aside from the show being so enjoyable, uh I looked over to my right and I saw that Josh Grobin was in the audience with his date. Mm. Um, so uh, just before the show started uh, he didn't no one seemed to be like bothering him or mobbing him or anything so i just kind of slipped over and said how much i enjoyed him and sweeney todd and i also said i can't wait for the album which they seem to be releasing in dribs and drabs Um, i said when are we going to get the whole thing and he said september and i and he said they're still mixing it (laughs) He said that was his reason that he gave for, and I said, Oh, okay. I said, I thought maybe it was just a marketing thing, but he said, no, they're still mixing it. Um, so for you Sweeney Todd fans, um, that's, that's from Josh Groban's mouth as to why, (laughs) why they're just releasing the album in, in track by track, uh, rather than all at once.
2: Yeah. That still mixing it type of thing. Uh, It is the thing that that producers have nightmares about because you can mix forever. You can mix forever and ever and ever. And, you know, theater is so Mm. different than Josh Groban's normal world of putting putting out an album that takes, you know, 18 months to two years to put out. And theater albums usually like three months. Got to get it out because it's got to support the thing. Uh, But, you know, as somebody who has produced albums and paid for studio hours and mixing and things like that, I I would have nightmares about that. I actually (laughs) haven't checked. I I haven't checked
0: on what label it is. Is it his label? I don't
2: know. I bet you I can. Yeah, we can obviously check that. Yeah. But um, the other thing about Alex's uh, talk about hostile audiences. But do you go to comedy shows? Uh, Michael, live comedy shows. Oh,
0: yes. Uh, Well, I mean, I've been to a few and and I'm sure that's what he was referring to. Yeah. No, no. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's just that it seemed like the audience there maybe didn't quite get that. And they thought they were referring to us.
2: Oh, I, see, was know, to I I understand yeah. that, but I, yeah. I think that he's just referring to comedy audiences. I'm sure. Just, I'm sure you're right. Yes. Brutal. I don't know why anybody would become a comic. I mean, the <laughs> audience is just, <laughs> God, it's just totally <laughs> terrible. And, you know, you feel so bad about these things when you come out, you feel like you need a doctor. <laughs> So, Peter, you got I over to Park that. Avenue Armory, <laughs> Speaking of where, where you saw the doctor
1: mm-hmm. at Park Avenue Armory. So tell us about this. Well, I'm very glad I did. This is an amazing uh, piece of theater. And, you know, it occurred to me that whenever I go to the Park Avenue Armory, it's always something that is anywhere from magnificent to the worst arresting, let's say. Um, so. For people who come to town and want to go to Broadway shows, and don't we all, if something's playing at the Park Avenue Armory, which is on 66th Street and, as you would infer, Park Avenue, um, I I think it's worth going to, uh, sight unseen, whatever it may be, because I've never had any time there that hasn't overwhelmed me in some way or another, and here's another time where it did. All right. The doctor is based on a 1912 play by Arthur Schnitzler, which was called Professor Bernard. And the thing was that Schnitzler, we think of as this frothy playwright. Um, one of his works was made to the 1961 musical, The Gay Life, <laughs> uh, meaning gay nineties, not, um, homosexual. Right. So, um, and, um, La Ronde, um, which after all does have some seriousness to it, but still, um, deals with, um, matters that aren't nearly as severe as what happens in the doctor. So what happens in the doctor, which has been updated, that's a very important part of what's going on here. Um, we, we have to be very, very impressed that Robert Icky found this and, uh, adapted it to today. However, even when, um, Schnitzel wrote it back in 1912. He was talking about abortion. Okay. A 14-year-old girl has um performed an abortion on herself because she can't get medical care. And she winds up in the hospital and she's dying. And the doctor, Ruth Wolfe, um, is in charge, and she is a t- tough cookie i'm telling you um and she is a no-nonsense won't suffer fools in any way shape or form and um so she's tough and her toughness comes in when a priest comes in to administer the last rites to this uh young girl and she won't let her um she won't let him see uh the girl because, indeed, she feels it's injurious that the girl is you know, life-or-death situation here, literally. And um she doesn't want anybody uh, going in there. And, you know, there is that argument that a lot of people do freak out when a priest does come in to administer the last rites. Because that is a, a way of saying, you're dying. You know, so she's concerned about that as well. She's concerned about a lot of things. And uh, so she won't let him in. Well, this becomes a cause celebre. Um, It gets out. uh, Petitions are signed. The first day there were 27 uh, people signing the petition saying she should have let the priest in. So she's not terribly worried. It's not long before there are 50,000 signatures. And so she gets in serious trouble. She goes on TV to defend herself. And indeed, um, that doesn't go well at all at all. So what we see here is a person making one mistake and paying very, very seriously for what that mistake is, even though we are led to believe that this is really quite a good doctor. And here's what's really smart about the play. The first scene has um, another doctor talking about the fact that um, I thought it was a problem with one organ in the body, Well, Dr. Wolf thought it was a problem with another organ in the body, the person died. This is a different person entirely, I should say. And um, let's see who was right. And it turned out Dr. Wolf was right. And so the other doctor apologizes and Dr. Wolf says, no, 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 no. You had your opinion. It could have been, you could have been right. I could have been wrong. You know, we're a team. We do the best we can here. I understand why you came to that conclusion. I just came to a different conclusion. So the point is, she's fair. And it's not as if, ha, 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 I'm so smart and you're so stupid. Nothing like that whatsoever. Nothing. (laughs) So so that's very, very powerful. But to watch this person of um, great stature and importance, she runs the hospital, um, be broken down because of uh, one decision she made, really points out the fact that it's very, 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 very um, easy to make one mistake and have people hate you for it for the rest of their lives. So, um, wonderfully done by a terrific cast. However, you have never seen as much non-traditional casting in your life ever. I don't think you may ever see as much non-traditional casting in your life. So if that type of thing bothers you, you're going to be um, really flummoxed here. Let me give Exhibit A. Okay, so the priest comes on, he's a white guy. And towards the end of the first act, the long first act, it's almost an hour and a half, the play is almost three hours long. At the end, towards the end of the first act, um, well, did you not let the priest in because he was a black man? But he's played by a white actor. Um, there's a character named Roger, and uh, Roger is played by a woman. So there's a lot of that going on. So it, you might get confused from time to time. And um, why, indeed, um, the director uh, Robert Icky did this may, <laughs> I, I guess, it was a situation where you hear, you know, the people audition and the best people got the parts. Okay, um, so that's certainly um, a, a, a trope that uh, many uh, go to today. One thing I didn't like at all at all is he has a drummer um high above the action, punctuating lines with boom boom ironically enough the um person who's um playing the drums, I think is actually named boom boom or somebody somebody's name boom boom um mm-hmm. maybe it's not the drummer, but um anyway uh. Pff- so uh, it takes me out of the play. I mean, this is such a searing drama where the stakes are so high and it's so gripping that um I I, I don't want it uh, made artificial by a drummer. So I didn't like that at all. And um, the other problem, too, is they're talking about the fact that um, they can't get in touch with the parents. Well, in this age of technology with um, iPhones and cell phones and even landlines, um, I think it's very possible to get in touch with the parents. And that's never explained why they don't get in touch with the parents. You don't say to the parents, do you want the kid to have the lost rights? Um, So in 1912, I can certainly understand why that was a barrier. Maybe the parents lived 30 miles away who knows but um but this is um a, a flaw in the play for me and um but i'm telling you juliet stevenson whoa boy does she grab this part and she will not let it go i mean she is amazing in this role and um i mean we um she was the actual person to uh i think in the very first production of death and the maiden uh the part that glenn close played uh many years later on broadway and um and she got an Olivier for it. So uh, I, I imagine she got an Olivier for this. I I, I didn't check to see, but um, I did notice going in that um, a, a, a window card had a quotation from a critic uh, in London saying, this is the play of the decade. You know, not the play of the year, but the play of the decade. And I can really understand why. So, um, But really, get to the Park Avenue Armory. There are a lot of seats there. I'm not saying that They may all be sold for all I know, but um, there are a lot of seats there in the stadium seating and I have to say that I think the sound is very good, very good indeed. Um, the, the, uh, one time it went out uh, for a couple of seconds, and that reiterated the fact that how good the sound was when I um, when I was hearing the person um, without a microphone. So, um, so this is a powerful, powerful play, uh, and uh, it, it may shake you to the core, uh, but it'll certainly make you uh, think twice before you make any decisions. Uh, just as uh, Ruth Wolf wishes that she had made uh, a little more, given a little more thought to what she was doing before she made her decision.
0: Peter, you you mentioned the non-traditional casting, but does that extend to, was the role originally written for a woman or for a man?
1: I imagine a man, Professor Bernhardt um, would seem to me um, in those days, a professor would be a man. So I'm guessing
0: that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing, I don't
1: know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
2: So uh, Park Avenue Armory, just uh, uh, the place to uh, keep on everybody's radar oh, screen. Yeah. It, it's just it it's just so, <laughs> it, it's just so you know, not in the place that you would think to go see no. Broadway Theater.
1: No, no. and
2: and, and uh, you know, and <laughs> they've been around forever, but they're starting to, you know, especially
1: uh, well. Let, let me disability. say this. The other thing, too, is so many of these things come in for a weekend or two. Mm-hmm. And this one's going to be there till August 19th. And that's great. And it's been running since June 3rd. Um, I didn't get invited until um, the 22nd. But um, but really, you know, so this is an extended run for this play. And uh, it deserves it.
2: All right. And we will have a link to that in the show notes so that you can uh, check it out and go check it out uh, running through August 19th. So uh, Michael and Peter got over to 54 Below to, uh, Peter, correct me if I'm wrong here, Michael, correct me if I'm wrong here, Um, the newest and youngest member of the Drama Desk now. (laughs) Uh, I think
0: that's a safe assumption.
2: Uh, (laughs) uh, So Charles Kirsch, our friend Mm -hmm. Charles Kirsch, doing his backstage babble live at 54 Below and Peter and Michael were in attendance. So Michael, why don't you start us off with this?
0: Yes, it was Monday, July 17th, and it was incredible uh, just reading the list of people that Charles had corralled to be in the show. Uh, I didn't get a ticket till the last minute, but I thought I really should be there, and I think I got the last ticket. (laughs) Um, These are just – I'm going to mention these people, and this is about half of the p the, the program okay judy k was there um to sing a song from oh brother d jammin bartlett which uh i guess now i finally know how to pronounce her name uh, <coughs> assuming that charles pronounced it correctly uh, came and recreated her original performance of the miller's son from a little night music and basically sounded Exactly the same I agree. as she sounded on that cast album mm-hmm. in 1973, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Ken Jennings, uh, <laughs> the original Tobias from Sweeney Todd, uh, came to sing Not While I'm Around. And um, Jim Brochu, um, uh, he actually was in the cleanup spot uh, for the show. <laughs> And it was well-placed because he brought the house down with his uh, interpretation of the Butler song from... Uh, what, uh, Depending on title? how
1: you look at it, it's so long, 174th Street or laughing. Yeah, that's, um, why I, that's why I right. yeah,
0: yeah. um Two yeah. titles for that one. Yeah. Originally performed by George S. Irving, who was Jim's mentor, one of Jim's mentors. So mm-hmm. that's why he wanted to do that. And I think that George would have been very proud uh then we had i'm still going we had Josie De Guzman uh singing uh, if i were a bell which she sang uh, in the re- ni- the famous 1992 revival of Guys and Dolls in which she played Sarah Brown uh Christine Andreas uh one of the great broadway Mm news of the 70s uh and early 80s i guess uh did a a sort of midley mini medley Mm -hmm. from on your toes it's got to be love and glad to be unhappy terry ralston uh sang chanson from the baker's wife which she sang in the original production uh stephen skybell and a wonderful woman named michelle mcconnell who apparently has played Carlotta in Phantom on Broadway, uh, did a song from an unfinished Cy Coleman musical called The Great Ostrovsky. Uh, And as I say, that's that's only about half of the program. Um, It was just one amazing moment and highlight after another. And I'm sure Peter will identify some of those others for you.
1: Well, what I will say, um, I, I was really impressed be, uh, with Charles because so many MCs get up there and they read from index cards. Mm. And he memorized what he was going to say. Yes. And what's also wonderful is the the expression on his face when he talks about the golden age of Broadway. Notice that so many of these people um, were performing in the 60s, 70s, etc. And um, so Charles has a great appreciation for that era and was thrilled to put this all together. My favorite moment by far came at the end with Jim Brochu. Now here's why. All right. So we're so enthusiastic. We're applauding like crazy. And another show has to get in. This was a 7 o'clock show, but there's going to right. be a nine 9.30 show on Dine, whatever it is. And um, so things are really getting... Uh, tight. And Charles um, says to us, look, um, you know, another show's coming in. Would you please hold your applause? And Jim Brochu came on and said, this is what every actor always wants to hear before he goes on. Please <laughs> hold your applause. You know? <laughs> so we were all in love with him before he even uh, sang a note of the Butler song. So, yeah, it really was something. Um, I want to go on a tangent here about glad to be unhappy because, mm-hmm. um, Linda, who I mention all the time, um, grew up in the uh, in the '60s, and certainly has a penchant for '60s pop music. And uh, she was playing a Mamas and the Papas album the other day. I had no idea that this group called the Mamas and the Papas. Yeah, what do I know about Mamas and Papas? They mentioned in the opening number of Fiddler on the Roof. That's what I know about (laughs) Mamas and Papas. But they recorded Glad to be Unhappy. Wow. You didn't know it either? Is that amazing? (laughs) But here's the thing. You know, the lyric um, written by Lorenz Hart way back when for On Your Toes, um, uh, with no mammy or no pappy, and they actually sing with no mamas and no papas. Yeah, they changed oh. the lyric, so I, I understand why. But um, but anyway, uh, yes, um, uh, certainly, and I should remember also I enjoyed um, hearing Todd Sesma come on, um, uh, an actor I'm very very fond of. So um, I thought he was terrific as well. I had a great time sitting next to David Green, who is married to Judy Kay, and um, and and he was talking about the fact that um, that they had met uh, while he was doing uh, on the 20th century. Uh she wasn't in it um this this was a tour and um but uh frankly judy once told me she said i went to see this production i thought well at least there's one guy up there who knows what he's doing and that's why she wanted to meet him and look uh there they are <laughs> together i also sat with leroy Reims, who by the way is having a show um this week on uh wednesday night i believe it is i wish i were in town i'm not going to be uh because i'm going to uh texas um but um it uh Uh, he's doing a show in which he promises to really tell the tales. Uh, I think it's called Leroy Reams Uncensored. And he is a great storyteller, a phenomenal raconteur. And um, I really think he's going to bring the house down. So it was great sitting with him too. Um, So yes, uh, packed, Hat. And yes. um, it, it was so nice to see so many people that I know there who really wanted to come out and see what Charles Kirsch was all about. And they learned what Charles Kirsch is all about and uh, seeing his knowledge, enthusiasm, and even uh, quite a bit of savoir faire for a 15 year old kid. Well, all right. He's almost 16. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're all getting older. Why should we? <laughs> That's time right. Time
0: marches it on. Does. It
2: sure does. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so that is uh, Charles Kirsch's Backstage Babble live at 54 Below. Hopefully, there'll be another one, certainly.
0: Uh, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. He is
2: uh, really doing great, great work in his mm-hmm. podcast mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, making uh, quite an impression on the Broadway community. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. So that is wonderful. So, uh, Peter, you got over to Theatre for the New Audience, Uh over in brooklyn to see orpheus descending so uh, tell us about this production
1: well whenever i see a a, a play that's being revived for which there's a movie version i always watch the movie and the movie of um orpheus descending was retitled the fugitive kind which is a a, a three-word uh, phrase that comes out very late in the actual play Uh, So I watched it, and uh, Marlon Brando plays Valentine Xavier, um, a a guitar-playing drifter who um, has been forced to leave town and go to another town. And um, Anna Magnani is the person who's running a business, and he comes in, he needs a job, and she's going to hire him. Frankly, I had a terribly difficult time with the movie. Because Anna Magnani's accent, um, she learned English, uh, was so thick. Now, this surprised me because the two greatest performances I believe actresses have ever given in movies, first place, Vivian Lee for Streetcar Named Desire, second place, Anna Magnani in The Rose Tattoo, both, hmm. of course, by Tennessee Williams, which I find interesting, too. But I can understand Anna Magnani much better in The Rose Tattoo, which was made several years earlier. Um than um the fugitive kind. So um so I had a real tough time. So I was very glad to uh get to Brooklyn and see Maggie Siff, who many of you may know from the TV series Billions, uh play the role because now I can understand what the words were. So um she's very, very good. Pico Alexander, not as hot as Brando, that might be a lot to ask, but um <laughs> a little stiff. But I'm telling you, the strangest, strangest set. Um Okay, think of um, a set as um, three units: um, left side, middle, and uh, right side. Okay, think of them as three equal cubes, so to speak. All right, the middle cube is where the set is. There is nothing on each side: the left cube and the right cube, nothing. Uh, it's this. If they tore down the set, it would be the bare stage. So okay, um so I'm thinking all right, this is pro- this says probably on a turntable and um they they need that space to turn around and no, no you are stuck in that set all night and to see just a tiny part of the stage used is very bizarre. Okay. So early in the show, um two people who play customers walk off uh and they sit on chairs heirs in the um, house left side of the stage. And you think, okay, so the director um, is, uh, and uh, Erica Schmidt, who who have admired many uh, previous Uh, productions okay this is she's using the famous tools in a box approach that um actors are going to uh sit there and uh, then come on and so they never they never do that again um only in one scene do they um people come up sit down and watch the action and then go back um, uh, on the set never happens again so um to be perfectly frank this is not one of tennessee williams great plays and uh, didn't run long when it was on broadway which doesn't necessarily mean anything but it doesn't mean nothing either um it's <laughs> it's it's muddled it's confused much of the time um what it is really is about a guy who really wants to make good he really wants to do well and work hard and so on and so forth but whoa Um, He is catnip to a lot of ladies, um, catnip to customers, um, catnip to a woman who uh, certainly is a a, a very wild and um, difficult lady and um and he he seems to resist this for the longest time but there's only so much time you can resist when people are coming on to you <coughs> so that gets him into serious trouble but yeah you know, it, it reminds you of a sweet bird of youth there's even a line about life in the body which reminds you of a cat in a hot tin roof so um it, it seems to be um uh, that this is one of the points where tennessee williams was running out of gas and he did as time went on, needless to say. So um so it's 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 a pretty muddled play. And um but the set does it no favors. And um uh, if if Pico Alexander could have a little more heat, I will say there's there's a very nice supporting performance by a woman named Anna Reeder, who plays the Sheriff's Wife. And she's a painter, um an amateur painter. But she has the audacity, and I mean that as a compliment, to uh, paint in the way she feels. So in other words, she said, here's a, a painting of the church downtown. Somebody says, well, but the church is not red. She said, yeah, but I feel like making it red. You know, so, uh, But a very natural performance. The favorite type of acting, she doesn't seem to be acting at all. So uh, even though Maggie Siff is very good, uh, even though the rest of the cast is very good, to me, the standout was Anna Reeder.
2: Okay. So that is uh, Orpheus Descending at Theatre for the New Audience in their Brooklyn space. Uh, And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's playing through August 6th. And also in the show notes, I've included this uh, really, really wonderful feature in the New York Times um, of Orpheus Descending's uh, Maggie Siff and the uh, director, Erica Schmidt. So if you're interested, get over to the show notes and check that out as well. It's been about a year or so since I've seriously gone to the theater and I'm making my way back out. And uh, my first show back out was to see Hamlet at the Delacorte Theater. Um, Peter talked about it a few weeks ago, um, and I wanted to, you know, weigh in and uh, talk a little bit about uh, the production in my view on it. Uh, I had a very, very good time on it. Uh, I didn't... um, uh, I, I went back and listened to Peter's re- review of it, and uh, he talked about the various cuts. I, I didn't notice the cuts, although I'm not a student of Hamlet, and uh, I haven't seen all that many productions of it, but I didn't miss anything in the story. And Peter didn't say in his review that he missed anything. He actually said some of the cuts were really well done uh, by Kenny Leon, the director there. Um so pfeiffer was just a, a tremendous uh, s- uh stand out as ophelia mm-hmm. and uh one of the things that um uh, you, I, I i wouldn't say bothered me but uh I, I was i was confused about was that the uh Kenny leon's direction did never really address um and obviously the text doesn't address this but didn't address the set by beowulf, beowulf <laughs> or um and it it's very uh it, it's confusing to me because it, it's such a stunning visual of uh of uh updating um some of the sets and costumes um to the current day to bring it into where, uh, the King was, uh, a former United States Marine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they had a various, uh, Stacey Abrams, 2020 poster there and a Hummer parked in a puddle. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure how that really added anything to it. Although it was, uh, very visually interesting to look at, uh, um, but the standout is certainly the cast, which really brought this uh, production home for me. As as, St- uh, as uh, Peter had mentioned in his review, uh, this does come in at nearly three hours does not feel like three hours at all it really flies it really flew for me mm-hmm. such a wonderful wonderful uh uh evening at the theater it was funny a couple. i was there scheduled to see it a couple of weeks ago and it got terribly rained out uh, i was there that evening uh and they canceled at the last minute and last uh last evening when i saw it uh it was just a perfect night for outdoor theater and uh new york is very very lucky to have the, the Delacorte. and uh, and as and we've mentioned
0: they him. won't have it next year because mm. it'll be under renovation so uh yeah so if you don't get to this show you won't be able to <laughs> Be yeah. in that theater until probably the following summer.
2: Well, uh, they are having a production of the Tempest, but that's going to be the uh, oh,
0: that's right. The public is that a public works? public works? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah.
2: public yeah, works. Yeah. So the Hamlet is ending August sixth. Public works starts August twenty seventh, just through September third, so like a week or so. Uh, and that's the Tempest. And uh, if they can schedule the rain for that production, that would be good. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that is going to be the Tempest, will be the absolute last time that you get into the Delacorte for the next 18 months. Oscar Usses, uh did a curtain speech. Uh, also last night when I was there, there was 10 cameras shooting uh, the production, and uh, there were signs out front that it's uh, for great performances. So you will get a chance to mm-hmm. see this. At least on television, uh, for great perform, PBS, great performances. And, uh, hopefully those around the world will also get a chance to see it outside of the United States. Uh, what, what a, what a wonderful production. So that is Hmm. Hamlet playing through August 6th. So you have a couple of weeks left to get over to the Delacorte and see it. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and our musical moments, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to an Apple podcast. There's many ways to get us. One way to listen to us early and support Broadway Radio is to subscribe to us through Patreon, dot com slash Radio and that way you'll be able to uh subscribe to us get our uh broadcasts early plus um uh, support all the different work that we're doing on broader radio, spotify iHeartRadio, radio tune in stitcher google play also has a stitcher is closing in the end of august so or transitioning to a new platform so if you are listening to us on stitcher get over to stitcher and get on the new platform uh, contact information for Peter from Michael and me can be found in the show notes at radio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to the violet question <laughs> from last week, which we've had so much uh, <laughs> colorful answers to?
1: Haven't we? Um, last week's question, as I fully admitted, was silly, really silly. If Sutton Foster had gained an inordinate amount of weight during the middle months of 2014, what might an insensitive backstage visitor have said to her at the end of one of her performances? Well, because Foster was doing Violet at the time, a visitor might look at her, the heavier actress, and say, "You're no shrinking Violet." <laughs> well, Steve Bell was the first to get it, followed by Sean Logan, J. Aubrey Jones, Josh Israel, Brigadude, and Tony Janicki. Meanwhile, Paul Witty, Jim White. And Alex Lawa pointed out that an insensitive visitor may have called her Violet Beauregard, in reference to the character from mm-hmm. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, who inflated into a giant blueberry. <laughs> so I must acknowledge that their answers fit the bill, too. One other <laughs> thing about Paul witty he and his charming wife, Michelle, actually named their daughter Violet after the musical. So they were that big fans of it to have that happen. All right, this week's question. And remember, at Kathy Jones' request, the question can now be found in show notes, so you'll have the opportunity in time to give it a more detailed look that may help you solve it. What Sondheim work has a female character singing the first two lines of I Got Rhythm?
2: Hmm. All right, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at radio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, tell us what we have in this week's musical moment.
0: Well, I think we have to pay tribute to tony Bennett um so before I say uh what two tracks I've chosen from his amazing recorded repertoire uh you know I, I thought we could discuss him a little bit i I was lucky enough to see and hear him in concert three times, I believe, and uh i Thought I knew a, a lot about him, but I, I read, even, I learned even more in reading the obits. Um, there was an interesting thing in the New York Times obit that after Germany surrendered, uh, it says Mr. Bennett was part of the occupying forces assigned to special services, where he ended up as a singer with army bands, and for a time was featured in a ragtag version of the musical On the Town, <laughs> directed by Arthur Penn. Who would go on to direct Bonnie and Clyde and other notable movies in the opera House in Wiesbaden? Uh, he returned to New York in august nineteen forty six and set about beginning a career as a musician on the g i bill. He took classes at the American Theatre Wing, which he later said helped teach him how to tell a story in song. He sang in nightclubs in Manhattan and Queens, and that's how he got started um, uh oh, there was another note in in the obit that uh, actually when he was in the army that that tony bennett was one of the troops who helped liberate one of the concentration camps mm. uh and he later said you know he described the experience as hell on earth mm. uh so it's just uh, you know amazing to think that that one of those <laughs> soldiers uh, one of those heroes went on to be the most famous singers of all time Mm. uh but the bit about him studying at the american theater wing i think is so interesting because um he was tony bennett was of an era where someone uh could be uh, although he never was an actor and he never appeared in a on broadway in a musical or a straight play uh he did do a a concert on broadway Mm -hmm. but he um if you look back at his recorded repertoire it's just uh, i mean i would say he's very 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 well and closely associated with broadway Mm -hmm. because that was a time when so many songs that originated on broadway became part of the american songbook which Mr. Bennett tra- uh, championed for his entire life. Um, I uh, pulled out a, a recording that I have, Tony Bennett at Carnegie Hall, uh, 1962, and it's two CDs. Uh, uh, that's that's how uh, full an evening it was. And just listen to this. All right, the first song is Lullaby of Broadway, which was actually written for a movie um, and is actually going to be the first opening the opening number of my uh, jerry orbach show on tuesday um but uh it's later appeared on broadway of course in 42nd street and it's so much associated with broadway but then listen to these uh, this is just this is just the first several songs on the on the recording just in time from bells are ringing all the things you are Kern and Hammerstein from Very Warm for May, Fascinating Rhythm, The Gershwins from Lady Be Good. Uh, and then after he sings all that, he then says, We have some wonderful Broadway songs for you now, even though all of those have been from Broadway. <laughs> yeah. And he sings Stranger in Paradise from Kismet, Love Look Away from Flower Drum Song, Climb Every Mountain from the Sound of Music put on a happy face in a, a midly mini medley with comes once uh, comes once in a lifetime uh those two songs from bye bye birdie and subway's up for sleeping followed by a court wild section which <laughs> includes my ship from lady in the dark and speak low from one touch of venus and that's only the first half of the first cd so uh i mean you could learn a lot about broadway just by listening to tony bennett uh through the years and all of his wonderful amazing incredible recordings um so before i i mention what our opening and closing uh, musical moment are. I'm wondering if you guys had any thoughts on Mr. Bennett.
1: Well, I I, I have to say with you know, mentioning all those songs, what occurred to me is that he actually recorded two by two. Now you might say, Oh, the two by two uh, by Richard Rogers. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, the one from the 1970 musical. No, in 1965, He, Rogers, and Sondheim wrote a song called Two by Two for Do I Hear a Waltz, which was cut. So if you want to hear that, yep, he did that one too.
0: And (laughs) speaking of Two by Two, Tony Bennett also recorded I Do Not Know a Day I Did Not Love It. Right, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, What was so uh, amazing to me was that uh, my exposure to Tony Bennett was through my dad. And mm-hmm. my dad loved Tony Bennett and actually knew him. Uh, uh, and so I, I got the opportunity to meet him a handful of uh, times. Oh, wow. Um, great. and I, I never even thought about a Broadway connection. I had no idea that he did stepping out on Broadway, which was a couple of nights, uh, concert yes. on Broadway. Yeah. Uh, I really didn't know that consciously until I went and looked it up. Uh, but what, amazed me was the the number of stories from all various points of broadway performers about how they had worked with tony on this and that and or they met him or somebody uh, i forget off the top of my head who it was somebody met him on a plane (laughs) and uh and they were like 14 or 15 years old and and uh mentioned to him that they um they were a fan of his and they were learning jazz. And he had them sit down in first class with him and and ride with him on the plane and talk. Oh, I mean wow. I, I mean, the these stories that are just, you know, unbelievable stories mm. uh that have come out just talking about, you know, what a wonderful person he is. And it's so great to see and hear.
0: Billy Stritch uh, wrote on Facebook. He accompanied Tony for, I think, a, about a year on tour mm. uh, all over the place. And he said that Tony would frequently come to Jim Caruso's cast party um, on Monday evenings uh, because he was a fan of one or more people who were going to be performing that evening. And so one night he came and uh, I I think uh, I think it was actually Jim Caruso, who went up to him and said, uh, you, you don't want to sing, do you? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, hopefully. And and Tony said, I no, I'd, I'd rather not sing, but I would like to say something. So Jim said, You wouldn't believe how quickly I handed him the mic. Mm-hmm. And he and he got up and he said something like, Um, All you kids, you are keeping the American songbook alive and I just I love you for it. Mm-hmm. And so everyone was in heaven, mm-hmm. needless mm-hmm. to say. Mm-hmm. Needless mm-hmm. to say. Wow. That's yeah. wonderful. Both of these tracks are from that incredible Tony Bennett at Carnegie Hall album, 1962. Uh, the opener is Anything Goes from Anything Goes. And the closer is, you know, there were so many <laughs> things yeah. I could have picked, but a really beautiful recording of, of all things, Love Look Away from Flower mm-hmm. Drum Song. Mm-hmm. Uh, so please enjoy those. And, and, um, I'm sure we'll all, uh, remember Tony, uh, forever and, continue to enjoy that amazing recorded legacy that he left us Mm -hmm. all right so
2: on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway radios this week on Broadway bye-bye bye bye
1: love look away love
0: look away from me Fly when you pass my door Fly and get lost
1: at sea Call it a day
0: Love, let us say we're through No good are you For me No good am I For you Wanting You so I try too much After you go Cry too much Love, look away Lonely though I may be Leave me and set me free Look away away from me